Amen. God bless you. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Andy is out today. He's going to be traveling tomorrow, or his wife is uh, anyway. So he asked me to fill in for the announcements. And so I'm going to make a few. And if you look in your bulletin, um, it, uh, it does mention uh, correctly that we're going to have not um, next week, but the week after baptism. And so look forward to that. That'll be in the evening of November 14th at 6 o'clock. So keep that on your calendar. And then um, also the for December, we have a candlelight communion service that we normally do every year. And we've had to move it around to make things work out with those that, guests that we have scheduled and so forth. So we're going to do it the 19th. I know this has the different date in your bulletin, but it, it'll be December the 19th. We'll mention it again, because we'll probably change it again. No, I doubt. Hopefully we won't. So put that on your calendar. That'll be something that you'll want to keep up with as well. And um, uh, I think that's mostly uh, t tonight we have a and I'm going to mention this in a minute. T today is really All Hallows' Eve, and I'll mention that in a second. But, uh, but so tonight we want to invite you over to my house, if you uh, can. At 6 o'clock we'll have a fellowship, chili, hot dogs, that kind of stuff is there. And so you're welcome to come, kind of open house. Uh, I'll have a table out front because I'll have three or 400 children stop by my house tonight, believe it or not. And they want candy, but I want to give them a gospel track as well pray for them and play with them. I have a little game we play and so forth with some of them. Sometimes they just come in throngs. So if you want to help out with any of that, you can. Bring your kiddos as well uh, in our neighborhood if you want to participate in uh, the Halloween cultural event uh, in, any way, in any way. So we have those three things going on tonight, 6 o'clock at my house. Uh, be certainly a part of that. Uh, and... Um, Oh, one other thing. I think there's some booklets that Gail had made. Gail's traveling, and she just wants to make sure she's well for traveling. She's going to be seeing someone that is, um, is in hospice, and so uh, she wants to be careful about that. And so, in any case, she has prepared some booklets for the children that I think the Nelsons have, and they'll pass them out and see them uh, afterwards, if you will, to get that as well. All right. Now, in preparation to worship and pray, I want you to turn in your hymn books to 656, 656. If you notice on the front of your worship folder, it uh, mentions these five solas. I'll be preaching uh, on that content-wise. Today will take a little difference because today is, it happens to be October 31st. It's a day that we uh, uh, call Reformation Sunday if you will, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a bit. Um, if you'll notice in your worship folder on the inside, uh, after I give the prayer, then you'll see the, the hymns to be sung, and they correlate, thanks to Blake putting this together, the Nelson family, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and we'll end the glory to God alone. Hopefully I won't change the 
him at the end here because we have a mandate for that. Any case, so those correspond with that as well, and uh, I, I look forward to singing that uh, with you. Today, we um, call this day the Reformation Sunday. Uh, Stephen Nichols is a hist uh, historian, and he wrote a, good, a brief article that kind of explains this particular day. Uh, unfortunately, our culture has quite lost the significance of October 31st, but the church uh, remembers and certainly should remember uh, this day. Nichols writes, in a single event, changed the world October 31st, 1517. Martin, a young monk and scholar, had struggled for years with his church, the church in Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by uh, unprecedented indulgence sale. That is the sale for forgiveness of sin, if you will. The story has all the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster. First, there was this young bishop, too young by church laws, Albert of Mainz. Not only was he the bishop over two bishoprics, he desired an additional bishopric over Mainz. This, too, was against church laws. So Albert appealed to Pope in Rome, Leo X, from, um, uh, uh, from a, a well-known family. Leo agreed, allowing his taste to exceed his financial resources. Enter the artists, sculptors Raphael and Michelangelo. When Albert appealed for papal dispensation, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with papal blessings, would sell indulgences for past, present, and future sins. All of this sickened the monk, Martin Luther. Can we buy our way into heaven? He queried. Luther had to speak out. But why October 31st? Because November 1st held a special place in the church calendar. It was called All Souls Day. On November 1st, 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg, Luther's home city. Pilgrims would come from all over and genuflect before the relics and take hundreds, if not thousands, of years off time in purgatory. So they thought, and a made-up place, by the way. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right. Martin Luther, a scholar, took a quill in hand and dipped it in his inkwell and penned his 95 theses on October 31st, 1517. These were intended to spark a debate, a debate, by the way, among scholars. It was written in Latin. To some, soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church, these 95 theses spark more than a formal debate. The 95 theses also revealed the church was far behind, beyond rehabilitation. It needed reformation. The church and the world would never be the same. One of Luther's 95 theses simply declares, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago papered over the pages of God's word with layers upon layers of tradition. Tradition always brings about a systems of works, of earning your way back to God. 
It was true of the, the Pharisees, and it's true of the medieval Roman Catholicism. Didn't Christ himself my yoke, say, my yoke is easy and my burden light? Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is Reformation Day? It is the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of the darkness. It's the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It's the day that led to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's word as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to, and this is key in just a moment, hymn writing and congregational singing. It led to the centrality of the sermon and the preaching of the, of, for, for the people of God. It's a celebration of theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation. 656 in your hymn book is a, is a hymn that Martin Luther wrote. He wrote this for the church. R.C. Sproul comments, Sacred music was an integral part of Luther's background as a monk. Once he came out of the monastery, he had a profound appreciation of the importance of church music. In fact, he said, second only to the Bible, the Word of God, the importance of music because music has the singular ability to elevate the soul. I think that's well said. One of his hymns that he wrote that is familiar to us is this one here, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I hope you see in this and the other hymns that we sing, whether they're psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, that they all reflect the very character and nature of God found in his word. This one specifically is based on Psalm 46. God is our refuge, our strength, and very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Would you like to sing that along with me? Right where you're at, you be seated, and then I'll pray for us as the church, and, and then Blake will come and lead us through these hymns that express these truths uh, formulated in the summary sola statements. A mighty fortress is our God. Sing out together.
that are necessary for life and godliness. That can be found in the revelation of your word. I do pray for even this day we will be ever reformed, that is, ever coming to the knowledge of your truth. Your word is true. May it be exalted in our life. May we have a sincere hunger and desire to know the truth, to hide it in our heart. And more than that, Lord, to beyond that, to certainly believe it. Grant us, indeed, the faith to trust your word. May all doubt and anxiety be removed by the veracity of your truth. May we believe Christ, who explains that he indeed is the way, is the truth, is the life. And that through him we will come, and, and he will come for us to bring us to that very abode with you. I pray that our hearts would not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. May we trust in Christ and recognize he has a purpose and plan for our day, this day. And the breath that we have, may it, accept, it uh, extol you in great praise and give us great courage and faith in you. I'm thankful for those who have gone before, shoulders on which we stand, foundation, beginning with the apostles and the prophets, and then all of those who have courageously stood on the truth. I pray, Father, that we will stand too, create a pillar and a platform for these little ones to go forth into an increasingly darkened world to show the light of the glory of your grace. I pray for great revivals in our day, even beyond what we can think. We, we are discouraged often by the world and the culture and the system which seems to be falling like a house of cards. And yet, perhaps that indeed it is of your will to demonstrate your glorious grace, and as folks uh, begin to fall and crash down and uh, find great destruction in their life, I pray that they will find their refuge and strength, their help in the time of trouble, not in their own self and ideology and conjure up ways to, to push aside those things that trouble them, but rather to find the very grace of God. I pray that they will find it in Christ, of grace that will cast out all fear and doubt, and grant great trust in you. I pray that our worship will be pleasing in your sight as we think of these great truths from your word this day. I pray in Christ's name. Stand as we sing through the soul this morning, asserting the scripture alone, number 345, Holy Bible Books of Vine.
amazing grace, our sweet sound. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Amen.
Side of the book of Psalms, a passage from the New Testament that's relevant to the Reformation. We'll be reading the, the entire first chapter of Ephesians and the first 10 verses of chapter 2, which can be found in your Pew Bible on page 976. Again, that's page 976 in your Pew Bibles. The first two chapters of Ephesians describe the greatness of the blessings of salvation, which come to us by grace through faith, with works not being part of the grounds of salvation as Rome believed in the 16th century and still believes today, but rather the result of salvation. Uh, the Ligonier Ministries in their podcast recently have gone through the uh, issues of the Reformation, and R.C. Sproul made clear that the Roman Catholic Church officially believes in salvation by grace through faith, and to, to say otherwise is to slander their doctrinal position, although, of course, on a common level, many Roman Catholics would believe that salvation is by works, because the official position leaves out the word alone. 
They believe in salvation by grace through faith, but not by grace alone, through faith alone. And that is the position that the Bible teaches that the reformers revived. Uh, these chapters have been briefly summarized by saying, the believer is vitally united to Jesus Christ by the indwelling spirit through the redemptive work of the cross and has in him all spiritual blessings, including the assurance of an eternal inheritance and the working of his mighty power in and through him. A state of sin apart from Christ is a state of spiritual death and bondage to Satan. A great and happy change is possible on the basis of Christ's finished redemption, whereby men are quickened to eternal life by faith apart from their own merits. God the Father is the author of the plan, Christ the Son laid the foundation, and the Holy Spirit raises the superstructure. John MacArthur outlines the passage as follows. Salutation, chapter one, first two verses, and then God's purpose for the church, uh, chapter one, three through 313. Predestination in Christ, verses three through six A of chapter one. Redemption in Christ, verses 6b through 10, inheritance in Christ, 111 through 14, resources in Christ, 115 to 23, and new life in Christ, chapter two, verses one through 10. It may be interesting to note that verses three to 14 of chapter one in the original Greek are all one sentence the longest in the New Testament. Most English translations break it into several sentences, however, with the ESV making it four. Now that's because uh, most readers find it hard to follow long, complex sentences. And that was even true the time the King James Version was translated, they made it three. You might ask, are there any Bible translations that actually make it all one sentence? The, the answer is yes. The 1901 American Standard Version, which tried not only to translate the words faithfully, but follow the grammar as faithfully as they could as well, did make it all one sentence as well, making liberal use of colons and semicolons to separate the clauses. Let us hear then the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter one, starting with the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, and so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pastor Wayne has already prayed regarding the, the work and the, the continuation of it, of the Reformation. I thought that for my prayer, I would take something from the Reformation. The devout Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. That being the case, one might ask why she didn't change sides <laughs> if she thought God was answering John Knox's prayers. But th this morning, I'd like us to pray our thanks for salvation in the words of a prayer written by John Knox. Let us look to the Lord. Most merciful Father, we render to you all praise, thanks, and glory, for it has pleased you of your great mercies 
to grant unto us, miserable sinners, so excellent a gift and treasure as to receive us into the fellowship and company of your dear Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, whom you've delight, delivered to death for us and have given him to us as a necessary food and nourishment unto everlasting life. And now we ask you, O Heavenly Father, to grant us this request that you never allow us to become so unkind as to forget so worthy benefits, but rather imprint and fasten them sure in our hearts so that we may grow and increase daily more and more in true faith, which continually is exercised in all manner of good works. O Lord, confirm us in these perilous days and rages of Satan, so that we may constantly stand and continue in the confession of the same, to the advancement of your glory, who are God over all things, blessed forever. Amen.
Well, thank you, ladies, so much for, as Luther would say, elevating our souls to Christ, indeed. I invite you to turn to, in God's Word to the little book of Jude. Today I'm going to do a topical message, so I'll use a number of scripture texts. You can follow along or just listen. I decided to step away from my series in John to really address this day, Reformation Sunday, since it happens to be this very day, the 31st of October. Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith. Those that have contended for the faith has set a great legacy for us to continue on to hear that admonition. Our culture is going to call today Halloween. Historically, as we've already alluded to, this is in the church All Hallows Eve. That is the holy evening. A holy evening, a day before which we recognize those who have gone before who have stayed true to the word and proclaim the very truth in it. Those that follow in the steps of the Reformers designate the last Sunday in October as Reformation Sunday, and this is the very day, the 31st, a day which biblical truths were recovered re-emphasized, if you will. They never lost. They were always there. But they lost their emphasis in that sense, recovered in a call for reformation. This was, as we've alluded to, a watershed moment in the 16th century. Many in the church under the leadership of such men as John Knox, Martin Luther, Huldrych Zwingli, John Calvin rediscovered, reaffirmed, reemphasized these very fundamental doctrinal truths of Christianity that are essential to the gospel. It's essential in explaining what the gospel is all about. It's one thing to hear the word and to hear some phrases related to it, but what does it actually mean? The gospel needed to be reaffirmed. It was necessary because this is what happens. And in fact, the Reformation, if you will, needs a daily dose. Historically, if you remember Acts 2, the church started at Pentecost. After the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the disciples were watching, they were praying, they were waiting for the promise that Jesus had given them that the Holy Spirit would come and dynamically empower them to be witnesses to the entire world. Acts 1.8. The Spirit does come. It results in a powerful proclamation of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, essentially calling people to repent and believe. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter preached, simple sermon, thousands came to Christ. 
were repented, believed in Christ, and were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But as the church grew and as these same apostles warned the church, corrupting influences would come in. It would begin to permeate the church from the very beginning. The epistles deal with false doctrine quite a bit. Doctrine matters because the gospel matters. It's a matter of life and death. If you drink poison, you can become physically ill and perhaps die. That's bad. But if you embrace false doctrine, you may become spiritually ill and eternally damned. It's a lot worse. No wonder they stood firm on this truth. As Paul tells the church of Galatia, who just wanted simply to add something to the gospel. He said, I marvel at you at the church of Galatia that you have been so easily misled by the one who has called you by the very grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to a different gospel, which really isn't another gospel because there is only one gospel. And then he says, if anybody comes and he comes to you in, in, in great attire, in, in great eloquent speech, in fact, if it's an angel, if you will, from heaven... You can catch the hyperbole. If he preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. That means accursed. That means condemned to hell. That's how serious it is. He says it twice in chapter 1. If anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. To his protege Timothy before suffering martyrdom, Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, admonishes his protege, and he says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. What does he charge him to do? He says to preach the word. Preach the word. Preach what is written. Do it when it's in season and out of season. That is when people want to hear it and when people don't. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. Teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. They'll turn away from the truth and be turned to fables. This is what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. And so we have to constantly go back and follow the admonition of the apostles. In Paul's case, to simply proclaim Christ from the very word of God. Jude's admonition, it would be to contend for this very faith. There is a great warning I'm reminded in the John's 
revelation of Jesus Christ. Five churches in that first century had already drifted considerably. And Jesus reminds them to be zealous and to repent. That's the message. God has ordained various messengers to preach the word, sprinkled throughout church history to simply call men to repentance and faith, which is necessarily results in the obedience to Christ and his word. Men who have sacrificed political privilege to preach the gospel, the word of God to all men, there have been seasons of cold, dead orthodoxy when the warmth of the gospel has been diminished. It was out of season to preach the gospel in the 14th century. Men like John Wycliffe and his followers, the Lollards as they were called, they went around preaching the gospel to bring reformation, if you will, to the church. They preached repentance and faith. Wycliffe himself worked on an English translation of the Bible so that the common man could do what? Could very read the very word of God themselves, something we actually take for granted. They didn't have it in their own tongue. The majority of the church by that time in history was virtually apostate. They had abandoned the gospel, so they opposed Wycliffe. They opposed him for putting the Bible in the language and, uh, that people could read. They, destroy, they thought to destroy his work. But in 1384, Wycliffe died of a stroke. Thirty years later, a council declared him a heretic, ordered his body exhumed and burned. They declared all of his writings heresy and ruled that unauthorized translations of the Holy Scriptures into English was an act of heresy. My, they have really drifted. Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation because it was very dark. The light of the gospel, however, would not be extinguished. They didn't destroy all of his works. They didn't destroy all of his Bibles. Some of them made them over to Prague. And a student we know is John Huss or Jan Huss, however you wish to pronounce. He actively promoted the idea that people should read the Bible in their own language. For that, Huss was then burned to the stake in 1415. And from reports that I've read, Wycliffe's manuscripts were often, many of them were used as the kindling of the fire. The last words reported by Huss is that in he said, in a hundred years, God will raise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. And nearly a hundred years later, that brings us to 1517, October 31, a Martin Luther who saw that as somewhat of a prophecy, as the goose Huss prophesied about a swan who would come later. 
Lincoln, uh, Luther, should I say, nailed his theses, 95 that we're familiar with. They were issues of heretical theology, crimes of the Roman Catholic Church. He, he put them on the door of Wittenberg. This would have been like a bulletin board of the day. As I mentioned, he, he wrote them in Latin because it was meant really not to bring about some sort of reformation, although in God's providence it did. It was to bring about a discussion among the scholars. Before we know in history, there were some students who actually saw that, translated it, and spread it out throughout the land. The fires began to burn. Eventually, Luther was called to the Diet of Worms in 1521. They wanted him to recant of his teaching. Remember, they had burned in effigy Wycliffe and Jan Hus in actuality. Luther stood charged here of the same type of crime. His response, God used this very brash and bold man to stand before them as best we can tell in reports to say something to this effect after he did take a 24-hour pause to think about it and pray, in all sincerity, knowing what stood before him, he simply told them this, unless I'm convicted by script, convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the very word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Well, the rest we know is history. The flames of Reformation spread like wildfire. The reforms were fueled by others such as Zwingli, later Calvin. They preached the gospel and helped forge the foundation of what has come to known to us as the five solas. Truth summarized, articulated more clearly in the 19th century on which the gospel stands and falls. They're known as their Latin description as sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, soli doe gloria, and solus Christus. These five solas signal a clear departure from Rome. At the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, Rome anathematized the reformers and anyone who affirmed these concepts which became known as these five solas. As Henry pointed out, the line of demarcation here is simply this word, alone. It isn't that they didn't affirm Scripture. It isn't that they didn't affirm grace. It isn't that they didn't affirm Christ and God. It is alone. That's the single word that is the dividing line. Many churches will affirm these truths. And therefore think they affirm the gospel. But they don't affirm these alone. 
And in our text, in Jude, note here in verse 3, Jude is speaking to the beloved, to God's people. He said, Beloved, why I was very diligently to write to you concerning our common salvation, aspects of it, if you will, I found it necessary to write you to to write to you, exhorting you to do what? To contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Why? For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the reformers fought against. Ungodly men. Marked out because they turn the grace of God into, as he describes it, lewdness. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will raise up many more who will indeed continue to contend for the faith in Christ Jesus alone. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. If you note here, I will mention this text a little more. Jude's exhorting the church, those that are beloved in Christ. He says that there is a content to this faith the gospel, that content never changes, okay, in time. Time doesn't change that. It, it doesn't change with the cultural winds. There are a lot of people, a lot of places have different ideas and ideology. However, the gospel never changes. The faith never changes. Note here he says emphatically, once delivered to the saints. It's, a, it's apostolic. It is what Christ has given to the saints. The saints, the apostles here, has given it to all of us and written it in his word. Theological professors and institutions, scholars, they have all kinds of thoughts concerning the gospel. But it is a charge, though, for the saints, that is, for the church, to keep it. And demand that it be kept by those that would teach and preach. Jude warns about, I would call them the creeps. Those that are going to, he calls them creep in. Creep in for what purpose? To teach a false gospel. I I still can't get over this. I mean, if you don't want to teach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins, why even... Call yourself a follower of Christ. If you don't like Christianity, find something else. But no, instead they're going to creep in and corrupt. That's Satan's work. Talented, creative, articulate, and often much kinder types of people. Polished presenters, if you will. But that isn't the measure of truth. The measure of truth is the man Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth and denying the teaching once delivered by him is to deny Christ. 
we've used this summary statement, and I'd like to see if I can get through all of this. We'll see. The summary statements, as in your worship folder that we put there many weeks, and it has scripture verses along with it. I, we call them the five solas. These are key components of the faith that is once delivered. How would you understand this faith? Well, I'm not suggesting this is absolutely every nuance and idea of it, but certainly it, it, it helps you to articulate some fundamental truths that are uh, essential to the gospel. The first one, note here, is sola scriptura. That is scripture alone. 2 Timothy three fourteen reads this way, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul tells his protege the importance of God's word. It is this very word that is going to make you wise through faith, as it says. There's a call to then continue in those very things. Continue in those things which you have learned and been assured of from which you have learned them. And know that this makes you, quote-unquote, wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He is talking about the instrumentality, if you will, of the Word of God. It is that which will then bring you to the very knowledge of God. Paul would tell the church at Rome this way, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the words of Christ. This very word of God is the words of Christ. This is why we make this such an integral part of our worship service, every aspect of it. We read God's word. We sing God's word. We pray God's word. We explain God's word. It is through this very instrument, Scripture and Scripture alone, that brings about faith in Christ. The Scriptures themselves as we've been studying this in the morning hour with Paul, there, it is a dynamic book. It is said, notice verse 16, it is given by inspiration of God. Quite literally, the word could be expired, if you will. That's the idea. Theonoustos. It is, it is the very breath of God. God expresses himself in this word. And when we talk about scripture alone, what we're saying is it isn't the only source of truth. There's truth in many places. However, you can be assured of one thing, that this very word of God is the only inerrant, infallible expression of God. Everything else needs to be measured by this, including my preaching. Measure it by the very scriptures, my teaching, my document that we might hand out. Compare it to that canon of scripture, as we call it. Canon meaning the rule of authority, the rule by which all is measured. 
Rome taught that the foundation for Christian living depended equally on a combination of scriptures, traditions, and the ruling of the church. They cherished the exalted word of God, but put it on shelves and gave it equal footing to rulings by the church and tradition and ultimately, really, the ruling of the church. The Sola Scriptura is simply a, a formal principle, if you will, of the Reformation because it is the only infallible, inerrant source of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Belgic Confession in 1561 put it this way, we believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude of antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God. And therefore we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. It's a standard. Does it mean that it stands alone or apart from God, but it is the instrument by which God reveals himself for salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord? And deduced from that would come the sufficiency of Scripture. As our passage in Timothy says, it is profitable. It is profitable. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, that is, fully mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Philosophy, psychology, sociology, and other disciplines of cultural thought are insufficient in and of themselves. Oftentimes, because of the sourcing of it, they contain great error because they stray from the foundation of absolute truth, which is the Word of God. R.C. Sproul comments, everything we learn, economics, philosophy, biology, mathematics, has to be understood in the light of the overarching reality of the character of God. That is why in the Middle Ages, theology was called the queen of sciences, and philosophy her handmaiden. Today, the queen has been deposed from her throne and in many cases driven into exile and a supplanter now reigns. We've replaced theology with religion. Religion in the sense, what he's talking about is religious practices and philosophies and traditions of men. It is from Scripture and Scripture alone that we determine then this fundamental truth that salvation would be by grace alone. The Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches indeed today that men are saved through a combination of merit. Grace and merit. Merit that we, they accumulate is they, they teach through some sort of penance and good works. They receive participation in a sacramental system which 
infuses some sort of righteousness, so they think, and yet they would need more. They teach that some Christians, they would call them saints, which, by the way, if we read the Scripture alone, we would recognize that the saints are those that are made holy in Christ Jesus. It is you. It's not some super class of great religious person and great achievement that they may or may not. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You were made holy in Christ. It's the teaching of Scripture, not the teaching of men. Rome taught that there were some super Christians called saints who had some sort of abundance of their good works that they had performed, an excess, if you will, that they didn't need. And they they gave those excess merits to the church, and then the church could dispense them. And, of course, they dispense them by you putting money in the plate. No wonder Jude calls this lewd. It's immoral. You cannot buy your way to heaven. This is what troubled Martin Luther. This is what caused him to want to write these theses and put them on the bulletin board, if you will, to discuss it. It troubled him. Because people were being taught you could buy your way to heaven. And when he got to Rome, all he saw was this magnificence from the money in place being put in all kinds of ornamental designs. As beautiful as they were, they were stealing the gospel from the hearts of men. The church taught at that time and still does today that you can somehow get this excess grace dispensed to you through indulgences. Those are things that you buy, prayers and rituals, things that you do. Luther describes in Rome, he climbed up the steps to Rome. There were steps that were taken from the crusaders and brought there. Steps that supposedly Christ walked on when he was tried before Pilate. Who knows? But it was told if you, if you would just kneel and go up there, you, you would get all kinds of merit. And as a young monk, he did that. And at the top, he turned around and it's reported, he said, who knows? I tell you where you can get truth. It is in God's word alone. And God's word alone declares that salvation is not some sort of combination of human effort and Christ's effort. It's because of Christ's effort alone. Cooperation, human effort with the gospel, human effort added to the merit of Christ is the hallmark of a false gospel. It's either the divine accomplishment of Jesus Christ alone and everyone else teaches, oh, it's some sort of combination. They don't want to set aside Christ's work, but they want to add theirs to it. Can I remind you what Paul said to the church of Galatia? Galatia? Anathema. You're condemned to hell believing that. You can look at, we read Ephesians. You can look or remember the passage that we t- read earlier. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and we'll go to 10 even. I'll read it for you. It's real simple. Remember, this is the formal principle. This, once this is established, here I stand, 
then you could read this and figure out how you're saved. Can I tell you right now? On the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, for by grace you're saved. Through faith. And so that you won't misunderstand it, he goes on to tell the church at Ephesus, it's not by your own doing. There's no cooperation. It's a gift of God. That's what grace means. It means an unmerited gift of God. It isn't the result of works. If it was, you would boast about it. Where his workmanship in Christ Jesus created unto good works which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This was his idea from the very beginning. Read the first part of Ephesians. From the foundation of the world. This gospel of grace is powerful enough to bring about faith. Do you believe in grace? Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the power of, of the gospel because it is uh, it, the power of God because it brings about salvation to everyone who believes. Grace is not some sort of opportunity for you to latch a hold of Christ's merit. It actually accomplishes what he desires. It's not like an opportunity for drowning men in the middle of the ocean to be tossed some sort of life raft. I've seen that illustration with a rope on it to the ship. And all they got to do is gra- grab a hold of it. That's not grace because you still have your works, your choice, your grab, your hanging on, all of those merits. That is cooperating Christ saves. It's more like you're out there in the middle of the ocean drowning and the Coast Guard shows up. They drop a swimmer, professionally trained, and he goes over to you, latches a hold of you, and ties you and harnesses you in and brings you to safety. But that's really not a great illustration either. Because unlike the Coast Guard, Jesus Christ himself comes. He, is, he descended from heaven. And he will never fail. He is a perfect Savior. He will never fail at his mission. He will never not find that one he wants to rescue. He will never fail in holding on to that one, in latching hold of him and grab him. Jesus would say in John 6, 37, because all of the, the, the Father has given to me, they will come. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. How much more assurance do you want of his glorious, powerful grace? This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Grace is greater than you can imagine. It's more abundant than you can know. It is the inexhaustible love of God in the person of Jesus Christ 
Salvation must be by grace alone. You can't compare any of your works with Christ. You can't add anything to his accomplishment. Otherwise, his accomplishment would be insufficient. Jesus Christ doesn't need your sinful works. He mercifully atoned for them on the cross. And by grace credits his work to your account. The Belgic Confession of 1689 puts it this way, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross undergo this in their stead the penalty due to them to make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and riches of grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Paul in Romans puts it this way in 5.18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, speaking our place in Adam. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift, his grace, came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It is the grace of Christ. Understanding the biblical view of the doctrine of grace led the reformers to affirm the apostolic teaching of the what we would call now the de- total depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, the unconditional aspect of God's choice, his election to salvation done before the foundation of the world, and to the definite atonement of Christ who actually accomplishes salvation for those he saves. And the effectual call in that all that the Father has given will come, that Christ would be glorified. If you remember, as we read through Ephesians, did you catch the phrase repeated three times in the first chapter? If not, read it again and weep in your devotion with Christ. Why? All of this to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Do you understand it is by his grace alone and to him be praise alone? The third aspect is the faith, faith alone. Rome taught and still teaches that we're justified, as I mentioned, by faith and works, which we produce. They teach that God through our faith, infuses a degree of righteousness or merit. Reformers totally rejected that idea. The explanation of faith really is that which lays hold of Christ. Faith alone is called the material principle of the Reformation. Calvin describes it this way. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the principal hinge by which the religion is supported. Luther described it in, in the article by, by, as the article by which the church stands or falls. 
It was his conviction that this article is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. And without it, the church of God cannot subsist one hour. R.C. Sproul says it was this article of faith more than any other that brought the reformers into conflict with medieval Roman Catholicism. It was the substantive and core issue of the debate. Calvin, in his debate with Cardinal Sotolito in 1477, said, Justification by faith is the first and keenest subject of the controversy between us. Remove the knowledge of this doctrine, he argued, and the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Faith alone, in Christ alone. The Geneva Confession, written by Calvin in 1536, affirms we confess that the entrance to which we, to which we have uh, great treasures and the riches of the goodness of God that is granted to us by faith, inasmuch as in certain confidence and assurance of heart we believe the promises of the gospel and receive Jesus Christ as he's offered to us by the Father, described to us in the word of God. Our word for faith that we often use in English translation is believe. Believe in God. How would you come to have this faith? Is this then a work of the flesh? Is it just a change of mind in which you can all of a sudden not believe and then all of a sudden believe? How does that happen? Is it a matter of just gathering a certain amount of facts and you affirm those? No, what we're talking about is a supernatural work of God's grace. By grace you're saved. Through faith, it is a gift of God. The grace talks about God's gift. This faith is simply a response to God's work. I describe it this way. It is like breath to a living person. If you're alive, are you actually breathing? Is there some sort of mechanics to it? Can you control it to some degree? Sure you can. But go to sleep. Are you still breathing? You're unconscious. How are you breathing? Kids, don't try this. But if you were to hold your breath long enough, you'd pass out. And guess what would happen? You'd start breathing. We, it, there is a mystery to it. Yes, it is really your breath. Yes, you are really breathing. Yes, you can control some aspects of it, no doubt. But ultimately, look at it as a very gift of God. The very breath that we have and the very faith that you have is his divine work. It isn't your work. It is his. It is his doing. It is a gift, a gift of God. Well, I figured I'd be out of time, but here's a good place to, to finish up, and I'll see if I can squeeze this in. Bear with me for a minute. The Scriptures, formal, it's the foundation of the truth that we learn about grace and faith, but ultimately it points to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I hope he's the treasure of your heart. Rome taught that there were a lot of mediators between God and man. Scripture is clear. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is it? Christ Jesus, you know. 
The church promoted all kinds of prayers to other saints and other superstitious things on your behalf. They'd even today call, ask you to call unto Mary because Jesus is her son. Some convoluted traditional man. You're not going to find any of that nonsense in Scripture alone, right? That's where it has a start right there. To know really about Christ and Christ alone. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 30, asks, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and happiness in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else? Answer, they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior or that they who by true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. It is Christ alone. Jesus Christ, by the way, is the personification of all the other souls. Did you ever think about that? Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John in Revelation reminds us at the very close of his book in chapter 19, he gets a vision of Jesus with his garments dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, Revelation 19:13, the Word of God. Jesus is grace personified. John 1, 14, the word became then flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son of the father, what? Full of grace and truth. 17 of John 1, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the object then of our faith. Our belief is in him. It, it's just not an idea in our head. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ. So therefore, in him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching everyone that with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He is the object of our faith. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the te under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We preach Christ and Christ alone, Colossians 1. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Christ alone. All of this points to ultimately the glory of God, the triune God. Martin Luther explained that the Roman church had held to a theology of glory as opposed to the glory of the cross. 
The glory of sinner's salvation was attributed partly, as we mentioned, to Christ, partly to Mary, partly to the saints, and partly to the sinners. God will have none of this. God has done all things for his glory. God must be God-centered, otherwise he would be an idolater. And I don't have time to go through the detail of this, but I'll highlight it, and you, perhaps it'll be a memory cue to you as I go through. God-centered biblical worldview is what the Scriptures teach. He chose His people for His glory to the praise of the glory of His grace as we've already read in Ephesians 1. He created man, all man, all mankind for His glory. And he calls then to us to bring back his sons and daughters from the end of the earth who he created for his glory, Isaiah 43. He rescues Egypt. Why? Because of his glory, that for his name's sake, his mighty power might be made known, Psalm 106. He raises up Pharaoh to show his power, Romans 9:17. his glory. He defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. Exodus 14. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. He acted, Ezekiel 20, for his name's sake, that it wouldn't be profaned among the nations. God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name, 2 Samuel 7, 23. He redeemed his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things. God didn't cast away his people because of the glory of his name, 1 Samuel 12, for his great name's sake. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name, 2 Kings 19. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name, Ezekiel 36. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I am about to act for the sake of my holy name. God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to us. Why? To, to vindicate the glory of his righteousness, Romans 3.25. To show God's righteousness by the propitiation of Christ's blood. God forgives sin. Why would he? He would tell us in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out transgressions. Why? For my own name's sake. David prays, for your own name's sake, Lord, pardon my guilt for its great. Do you want to be forgiven? Ask God to do so for his own name's sake. In the 16th century, the monks divided life into sacred and secular. The reformers saw all life to be lived indeed to the glory of God. They reflected on what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what? The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see it? From him, through him, 
and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we will truly contend for these great truths of the gospel, that your name would be magnified in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would believe by faith granted to us by your grace and understand these truths not from our own perspective, but from your holy word. May it guide us into paths of great light. And I do pray that it will continue on in generation after generation until we see face to face the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Take a moment now privately to reflect on these things and I'll close in prayer. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to number 28 in our hymnals. To God be the glory, number 28. The Lord has done great things for us. now that there would be grace to each and every one of us here from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as we see in Ephesians 1 verse 2 may you be saved through his grace Acts 15 11. may you grow in his grace according to Peter 3 18 may you be strengthened by his grace according to 2nd Timothy 2 1 may you continue in his grace according to Acts 13 43 
May you draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, according to Hebrews 4.16. May he forgive your sins according to the riches of his grace, as we see in Ephesians 1.7. May you bear witness to the word of grace in Acts 14.3. And may your hope be fully on his grace, 1 Peter 1.13. To the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1.6, both now and to the day of eternity, 2 Peter 3.18. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.